All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to Hope. Those of you that are online on this cold morning, we are having a winter, aren't we? It has been freezing at our reservoirs are rising and I could cheer or boo on that, but it, it's been, yeah, it's been intense, but um, glad that you're here. And, and with that, let's, um, let, let, let's move into a different direction here in our church. Uh, we just finished a short New Year teaching series that we called Our Three Best Friends. And our three best friends here at Hope City Church are faith, actually it should be Jesus, I suppose, but faith, love, and hope, because those three elements make up the essence of our mission statement. Our mission, our purpose here as a church is to live by faith, to be known by love, and to be a voice of hope. And I think that is such a beautiful statement. And we will be talking about that forever because that's who we're uh, desperately wanting to be. But I want to shift gears today, and I want to start a new teaching thread. And I want to start it with a question. So, So quick question for all of you. How do you, Silas Granados, no, how do you, actually, this is a good question for you. Waste time. How do you waste time? And I don't mean like, what do you do at work that wastes a little bit of time? I'm not talking about the kind of time wasting that requires a new time management system or a better productivity planner. But I'm talking about when you just are vegging out. When you're just kicked back, when you're just chilling, and, and you're just, you're just kind of doing the mindless time-wasting stuff, um, what, what, is, what is your go-to that you go to when you waste time? So I, I think I'm going to count to three, and I'll let you turn to your neighbor, unless if you're super introverted, you can just tell Jesus. But, but maybe, just, maybe just have a confession moment and, and let, me, let me eavesdrop and tell somebody, what is your go-to that you go to when you waste time? Ready? One. Are you going to do this or am I going really, to feel really dumb up here? One, two, three. That is a lot of time wasting. <laughs> I thought you might just blurt out one or two words. I think <laughs> I think I just struck a nerve. We're on the right track here. I, 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 I think I heard golf. I heard Netflix. I heard somebody shouted TikTok as their go-to. I've never actually gotten into TikTok, but, but my, my big time waster, when it's just the mindless time wasting, is Instagram. And unless you have spent the past few years living with the Amish, you have gotten on Instagram. And the, the people that I follow on Instagram, they don't, they don't post a lot, though. So I don't have a lot of new posts to read, so I end up getting sucked down the rabbit hole of suggested posts. 
Have you seen that on your Instagram feed or the different reels pop up and you check one and it leads to one? So I end up just spinning out at all of the suggested posts or I end up like stalking Jean-Claude Van Damme or, or the actors that, that I grew up with. I, I've always had kind of a man crush on Van Damme. That was like two weeks ago, so he's still got it. <laughs> but, but, what, but we all have these things that we go to. We all have these these, uh, these random things that consume our time, they consume our effort. It, it might be um, overchecking emails like Laura Hopper. It, it might be overeating. It might be oversleeping. It might be golf. It might be TikTok or YouTube. But we all have these things that we go to. If I have to stand in line at Pyology longer than about 90 seconds... Out comes the phone and Instagram, here I come. But, but, but we all do this. And what we're doing when we do these things is what the social scientist Neil Postman says is amusing ourselves to death. Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, not in the sense that we're actually physically killing ourselves, but in the sense that we're numbing ourselves the waves of entertainment and mindless, the next thing, it never stops. You finish one TV show, next episode, 14 seconds. Or you finish the whole series and up next, because we think you'll like that too. We, we, we're bombarded right now with opportunities to numb ourselves. And what we're doing when we do that is we're keeping our minds occupied so that we don't have to focus on the things that stress us. We're keeping ourselves focused and fixed on things that keep us away from some of the things that actually matter. And the reason we're doing this, uh, in part, is because of something that Kierkegaard said. Soren Kierkegaard was a famous Danish um, philosopher, theologian, and he said, boredom is the root of all evil. It is very curious that boredom, which itself has such a calm and sedate nature, can have such a capacity to initiate motion or emotion. The effect that boredom brings about is magical, but this effect is not one of attraction, but of repulsion. So basically, this is a philosopher's way of saying that the more we engage in these mindless things, the more we want to engage in them. Boredom and kind of the mindless activity creates an emotion that creates a pattern. And that pattern kind of becomes like the ruts on the 10 freeway. And if you get close enough, it just kind of sucks you right into the rut. And we actually end up creating these habits in our lives and these habits, we're not consciously thinking this, but they tend to keep pulling us away from engaging with the things that matter most. And today, I want us to start just a few weeks of thinking here about a new series that will hopefully shake us out of the mind-numbing rabbit holes of triviality. That's a pretty... It's a pretty intense statement, the mind-numbing rabbit holes of triviality, but that is what we tend to get sucked into. Rest, recreation, time off is a gift, 
But when too much of our discretionary time, listen, we don't have a lot of free time. Our free time is precious. And when too much of it just disappears because of mind-numbing things, it takes us away from what matters most. So I want to start a new series called Beyond. And I want us to think about about breaking out of some of these patterns and moving into some of the things that matter most in the light of eternity. There are some things that matter in your life far more than entertainment and media and the mind-numbing practices. There are people that are so important that they're worth engaging with rather than settling for the comfort of the boredom, or the mundane. There are conversations that should be had. There are things to engage in. And very specifically, where I want to take this thought for just a couple of weeks, is I want us to think about what it would look like to make time in our lives to learn how to share the message of Jesus with people who do not know him yet. Sharing the message of Jesus with people who have yet to encounter him, is one of the greatest things that we could ever spend our time engaged in. And so I want to do just a very short evangelism series with all of us. And we're going to start today in Acts chapter 13. And we're going to look at the beginning of the Apostle Paul's very first missionary journey. So you can start finding Acts 13. And listen, I understand I've been around church long enough to know that when you announce that we're going to do an evangelism series, people don't tend to jump up and cheer. Uh, It it evokes certain emotions. And, And for some people, there are some red flags that go up when we start talking about this. Some people have a problem with the whole idea of evangelism or sharing your faith. I've known people that said, hold on a second, I, I don't think it's right to be trying to impose my religious beliefs on another person. Yes, I have faith, and I have a conviction about my faith, but but someone else, they have a conviction too, and and their belief system is just as valid as mine. So I don't even know about this whole idea of trying to convince someone to believe like I believe. I understand that discomfort. Um, There are some people who, who know that the scriptures urge us to be witnesses for Jesus, but we just feel like, I don't know what to say. I don't know enough scripture. I always forget those verses about salvation, and I'll probably get stumped the first time somebody asks me a tough question. And so we're a little bit intimidated. Um, Other people feel like, man, I, I don't want to inject any awkwardness into this relationship. You know, I'm trying to, to build a relationship this with this person. And if I start bringing up Jesus, that's going to sound about as fun as saying, hey, do you think Donald Trump was a good president? Or how do you think Joe Biden's doing? You know, based on the company you're in, that might not enhance the relationship. And so some people say, I don't don't want to create an awkwardness in this relationship. And then, of course, there are people, too, who um, just don't want to be labeled. I don't want to be labeled an extremist or close-minded or old-fashioned, and I certainly do not want to be labeled by the dirtiest word in all of our society today, judgmental, judgmental. (laughs) 
Well, if you will hang with me for just a couple of weeks, I promise you that all of these concerns, these fears, these objections, I promise you that they're not insurmountable. And I promise you that evangelism is not a painful, awkward, hey, by the way, I went to the dentist this week. Just speaking of painful, awkward, it made me think that I'm actually a little traumatized. I had a broken filling. This is so unimportant, but, but I'm feeling it as I speak. And he's like, hey, I think I can take care of this without any medication. He goes, would you be up for that? And I said, not really. And he goes, no, no, I'll do it really quick. I think I can tell. And he, he sits me down. He literally goes, um, he goes, man up. I'm like, really? And then starts, starts drilling. And, um, and I survive, but I still feel it. But find a new dentist, yes. Have you guys ever watched The Office? Your dentist's name is Crentis? <laughs> Only the office people get that. But anyway, evangelism is not like going to the dentist. It's not this painful, awkward experience. It is, it is life-giving and exhilarating. And it's absolutely possible to be the kind of Christian that a non-Christian would actually want to hang out with and still have meaningful conversations with about some of the things that matter most in life. And you'll even still have time for the latest Netflix show, so you don't have to give up all of the entertainment. But let's start here in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 1. Acts is the history book of the early church. It tells us how the message of Jesus started in Jerusalem and then spread outward toward all the ends of the earth. Acts, chapter 13, verse 1, says these words. It says, now in the church at Antioch. And let me bring up a map just real quickly here, just for a frame of reference. So everyone has heard of Jerusalem. Everyone's aware of ancient and modern Jerusalem. By the way, February 19th, right after our second service, we're doing our Israel 2023 informational trip. So we'll give you more information about that. But if you've signed up for our Israel trip, it's happening in October 2023, If you're interested, if you're considering, or you're just curious, right after second service, February 19th, we'll tell you all the details. It's going to be amazing. But everybody's aware of Jerusalem down on the bottom. And Antioch, up at the top of the map, was one of the power centers for the church in the first century. From Jerusalem to Antioch is about the same distance as going from here to Lake Havasu. Just a little bit further from going from here to Las Vegas. And about 13 years after Jesus was crucified and then rose from the dead, a church service was happening in Antioch. So around 13 years after all of that happened with Jesus, it says that in the church at Antioch, this worship service was occurring. And the first verse gives us a little peek at what it looked like. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, And then it starts to list them. It says there was Barnabas there. Barnabas was a follower of Jesus during Jesus' natural ministry. In fact, Clement of Alexandria, who was one of the early church fathers, believed that Barnabas was one of the 72 followers. Do you remember in Luke chapter 10, Jesus took 72 of his followers and he sent them out in pairs to preach and minister. Clement told us that Barnabas was one of those 72 that were sent out. And there was Simeon called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene. So these two men were both African. 
They were from North Africa. And Manian was there. And Manian had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Quick Bible trivia pop quiz. Um, who was the Herod? Herod is the, the title for king. Who was the king at the time of Jesus' birth? Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king at the time of Jesus' birth. He died very shortly after Jesus was born. When Herod the Great died, Rome took Herod's kingdom and they chopped it up into four parts. And they parceled it out to Herod's three sons and his sister. One of his sons was named Herod Antipas. That was this Herod the Tetrarch. Herod Antipas, you know about him, he was the one that had John the Baptist executed. And then after he executed John the Baptist, he tried to go after Jesus, although he just was never able to. That Herod, Herod Antipas, had a childhood friend named Menean. There was Menean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and somehow the Christian message had reached the childhood friend of Herod Antipas. This young guy grew up around the family of Herod the Great. Remember, Herod the Great massacred the baby boys when Jesus was born. So in just the opening couple words of this passage, the gospel somehow impacted one of the least likely people. In the church at Antioch, one of the king's childhood friends was worshiping and fasting and serving. And it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Saul was the Hebrew name of Paul, the zealous Pharisee, who was on the way to Damascus to hunt Christians when he saw this brilliant flash of light, encountered the person of Jesus Christ, was blinded for three days. But while blinded, he saw things that he'd never been able to see before. He met Jesus, and he encountered his destiny. And he came out of that time, that brief time of blindness, realizing, you are my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings. While they were worshiping and fasting, the Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Hey, do you believe that you have been set apart for a work that God has called you to? Do you believe that you came into this life prepackaged with a destiny? with something to fulfill, something you were meant to do with your life. Listen, sometimes it takes a long time for us to discover our purpose. Sometimes you can be in your 60s or 70s or beyond and still asking that question, what exactly am I supposed to do? It's really interesting. After Paul had that dramatic encounter, you would think that that dramatic encounter would have resulted in him immediately becoming the apostle Paul, but it didn't. 13 years passed. He sees Jesus personally, experiences a miracle, his life changes, and then almost a decade and a half goes by before his moment of launching occurred. So don't lose heart if you're waiting. Seasons of waiting, seasons of preparation can sometimes take a lot longer than we would like. But in this moment, the Holy Spirit spoke. 
and said, it's time. Let's commission these guys for what I've called them to do. And then that became the launch of the Apostle Paul's famous missionary journeys. So verse 3 says this, after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And the two of them went on their way, sent by the Holy Spirit, down to Seleucia, and they sailed from there to Cyprus. Why Cyprus? Let me bring up that other map. Cyprus, of course, is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. And the very first stop on the list was Cyprus. And it's fascinating to remember from Scripture that Cyprus was Barnabas's hometown. Early on in their ministry, it seems like Barnabas was the leader of the duo. When you read the book of Acts, it says Barnabas and Saul. But then there's a shift partway through, and now it's Paul and Barnabas. But early on, Barnabas was kind of in charge. Barnabas was the one who mentored Saul. He was the one who reached out to him after his conversion. So Barnabas had been coaching and working with this young leader. And Barnabas must have said, hey, if we are being commissioned to take this message around the world, the top of the itinerary has to be home. I don't know if that's where you would start. I don't know if that's where I would start. I might be a little intimidated to put my hometown at the top of the itinerary list. I think we would all want to do that. You know, when you have touched something that's real, when you have experienced the love of God and Jesus is changing your life, you want your family to know about it. But, but there's probably somebody here that would say, hell is going to have to freeze over before my uncle or my cousin or my whoever would ever be open to the idea of talking about this or responding to this kind of a message. Sometimes family and home can be one of the trickiest areas to minister in. And we're actually going to spend some specific time on that in one of these upcoming weeks. But for whatever reason, Barnabas had the faith to say, Cyprus is on the top of the list. So here's what happened when Barnabas went home. Verse 5 says, when they arrived at Salamis, Salamis was one of the cities on Cyprus, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. And let me just give you one more little tangent of Bible history. When it says that John was the helper, that's very important in church history. This John was John Mark, who traveled with the apostle Peter. The gospel of Mark is actually Mark's transcription of Peter's sermons and teachings. So the gospel of Mark is actually Peter's gospel. And then when Luke was writing Luke and Acts, Mark was one of his first, firsthand sources. So Mark was with them as a helper. And then verse 6 says, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. That was the, the premier city on the island of Cyprus. And there they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Bar means son of. Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua. So his name meant the son of Joshua. And he was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. I, I really like that. Sergius Paulus was an intelligent man, and he wanted to hear what Barnabas and Saul had to say. Listen, Christianity is a thinking person's religion. 
Um, We accept Christianity by faith, but we do not accept it by blind faith. Technically, there's no such thing as blind faith. Faith is a persuasion based on evidence. I can't prove it, but there's enough evidence that makes me believe it's true. This this is important because if we're thinking about having conversations with people, this is an important concept. You do not believe this by blind faith. You can make a decision by out of blindness. You can choose to believe something without evidence, but that's not faith. Christianity offers a profound explanation for the world. Whether this is true or not, it offers a profound answer and a brilliant explanation for the world. It does seem to be true that super intelligent and super rich people have a harder time accepting the message of scripture sometimes. But I want you to know, That's not because the smarter you get, the more you realize that this isn't real. Rather, I think the more intelligent a person becomes, or the richer they become, the more self-sufficient they become. And the easier it is to think that I don't need a God to help me, and I certainly don't need a God to bend the knee to and bow to. But Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, This was a Roman leader put over this district, was an intelligent man, and he realized, I have got to hear what these guys have to say. And by the way, real quick, um, put up that picture of the stone. Um, This is a a picture of of an ancient stone that was excavated from an ancient site in Cyprus. And the inscription, as you can tell, just kidding, the inscription refers to Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of Cyprus. Now, we can't prove that that's the exact same Sergius Paulus. It wasn't a terribly uncommon name. But this stuff did happen. These things were tied to actual events in history. And then verse 8 said this, But Elamis the sorcerer, so this this guy's name is Bar-Jesus, but Elamis is a title. Elamis the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. These ancient um, sorcerers were also called seers, and they were believed, or they at least claimed, to be able to predict the future. And so apparently, Sergius Paulus enjoyed having Bar-Jesus standing with him when he was governing, and he would probably give him advice or say little cryptic things about the future, and so somehow this was the arrangement. And when Barnabas and Paul came to Sergius Paulus. Elamis, the sorcerer, Bar-Jesus, was opposing him. So every time Paul would say something, um, Bar-Jesus would be like, uh, not sure about that. They, they would say something else, and then he'd be like, oh, Sergius Paulus, don't, don't give that the time of day. So every time they talked, he undercut them. Every time they tried to preach or present something, he opposed them, trying to keep the proconsul from the faith, and it eventually hit a nerve with Paul. (laughs) And Paul had enough. And in verse 9, it says, Then Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil. You are an enemy. This isn't how we witness, by the way. (laughs) You are an enemy of everything that is right, You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now, the hand of the Lord is against you. 
you are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, (laughs) and he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. And I might believe in that moment, too. Um, Paul, by the Spirit, was able to see into the inner workings of this sorcerer's heart, and he realized that this man was a train wreck on the inside. He was ruined on the inside. On the inside, he embodied all of the traits that were opposite the life of Christ and what Jesus was after. And so the Apostle Paul called down a judgment, and the guy went blind for a time. The Scripture says that clearly. This wasn't a permanent thing for a time. Why in the world would the Spirit urge Paul to do that and then back up those words with power? I don't know. But, but I do remember that the exact same thing happened to the Apostle Paul. And when the Apostle Paul was blinded, he had a chance to look on the inside of himself. And he was able to realize, I am ruined on the inside. I'm spending my time hunting down the people who are preaching the name of this person who has loved me more than anyone has ever loved me. When the lights went out in Paul's world, he was able to see at a completely different level. And so I just wonder if there was a comparison and a connection between what Paul went through and what God offered to Elamis. Now, we don't know how Elamis responded. The Bible doesn't tell us. There is a tradition that says that he never repented. He actually went on to lead some riots and some revolts against Barnabas, but we don't know that for sure. What we do know is this. God did not want Elemis to be a child of the devil. That's not who he was. That's not what he was created to be. Um, we know God's heart from 2 Peter 3, 9, which you'll see up on the screen. says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God would rather blind Elamis for a few days than let him perish. Sergius Paulus saw all of this, and he said, I'm in. I'm in. Raphael, the amazing 15th century Italian artist, um, created a tapestry of this encounter. It, It hangs in the Sistine Chapel, and I'll show you a quick image of it. You can see Sergius Paulus in the background Governing, you see Barnabas over on the side, or Paul reaching out his hand, and that's, that's Bar-Jesus or Elemis on the right, having just lost his vision. And if you hang with me in this series, you too will get halos <laughs> eventually. <laughs> but um, six, six quick observations. Let me rattle these off to you from this passage. So just a couple things that we see about evangelism. And Uh, In these upcoming weeks, we'll get into the mechanics. What do you say? What do you not say? Um, How how do you follow the Holy Spirit's leading? What do we do? So this will be a very helpful, demystifying, equipping conversation. But just, just to end this morning, a couple of observations. Number one, evangelism works even with the least likely people. Like Manan, the childhood friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Or, I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. At the end of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, 
It says, all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. I love this passage. It wasn't just King Herod's household that was affected by the gospel. The Caesar of the Roman Empire had people in his own household who were called God's people. It's pretty amazing. I think it's pretty amazing to know that there were Christians in the first century that walked through the halls of Rome, probably put their hands on those marble pillars and prayed, and, and, and the message spread all the way into the Caesar's household. The gospel can work with people that you might never think it could work with. Number two, it works with family and friends. And that's a whole different ballgame to discuss. As we'll do that next week. But listen, it works with some of those people that you might think it wouldn't work with. It worked on Cyprus. It worked in Barnabas's hometown. Number three, it works with the intelligent. The scriptures are very intentional when they tell us that Sergius Paulus was an intelligent man. It works with the intelligent. Listen, our gospel is a gospel for the poor. It is a gospel for the undereducated. It is a gospel for the marginalized. It is a gospel for the disenfranchised. And it is a gospel for the elite. Our world is so upside down. Um, Christianity sets the world right side up again. People, people call God's kingdom an upside down kingdom. In God's kingdom, you serve to be great. You give to receive. You push the down button to go up. It's your humility that makes you great. The reason it seems like an upside down kingdom is because the kingdoms of this world are all jacked up. The, 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 the power structure, the hierarchies, they are so upside down. And this gospel reaches people wherever they are in that demographic. It's a gospel for the poor, and it's a gospel for the privileged. And by the way, those of us who are privileged, and every person is privileged compared to someone else, but the responsibility of privilege is service. To the degree that we've been privileged, to that degree we serve. Jesus was the most privileged person in all of human history. He was God. And he took off his outer robe, put on a towel, picked up the wash basin, picked up a cloth, and washed feet. That was a modeling of what to do with privilege. You don't ever need to feel apologetic for your privilege. Privilege is something that came to you, had nothing to do with you. You're privileged. We're privileged. And so we serve. And we use that as a gift from God to give our lives away for the world. Um, But this is a gospel for the intelligent. So just because you may have that super smart relative that knows way more than you do about everything in the world doesn't mean that this gospel won't work with that person. That's number three. Number four, oh, I love this. This passage shows us that evangelism is a team sport. It's a team sport. Evangelism is not a solo activity. You know, when it comes to ministry and the life of faith, the antidote to fear is spelled T E. A-M. Team. Jesus never sent his followers out all by themselves to go do great and mighty things. You do, of course we stand alone. Of course we minister alone. But, but the framework is team. In fact, let me show you something that I think is so fascinating. In um, Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, we get a list of the names of Jesus' original followers. And you know how um, in our English language, do we have any English majors? Ha! <laughs> Nobody here has ever studied English. Did you all take English? How many of you have ever taken? <laughs> I 
Um, I'm, anyway. No, I'm just, I, I want to start speaking French or something and see if that would generate more. No, in English, remember, when you're writing a list, you usually say object, comma, object, comma, and the final object. For instance, I love Jessica, comma, Amber, comma, Maddie, comma, and Malachi, right? That's the way we construct our sentences when we're doing a list in English. Well, listen to this interesting arrangement in Matthew 10, verse 2. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew... James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. There are no single names listed. And and why is it phrased that way? It's phrased that way because these were the pairings, these were the groups of people who would go out and preach together. Listen, um, when your husband is not a believer and you're trying to figure out how do I navigate my faith when my partner doesn't believe the same way I believe, when your child isn't currently walking on the path of faith the way you hoped they would or raised them to, you need a partner in faith. You need a friend to stand with you. Listen, some of us are going to have a long stretch of time of praying for people before they respond to this message. D.L. Moody had a friend that he prayed for for 40 years, and this friend never became a Christian in Moody's life. Prayed for him every day, begging God, touch this man, let him see how beautiful you are. Never happened. Moody died He's being lowered in the coffin into the ground. At his graveside, this friend got on one knee and finally surrendered his life to Jesus. You might be praying for some people your entire life. You're going to need someone to hold you up. You're going to need someone that you can call and say, hey, this is a rough one. Pray for me. Pray with me. Fight with me together. I'll pray for you. You pray for me. I'll pray for yours. You pray for mine. That's the way the Christian faith works. And when we live that way, fear goes out the window. Um, Isaiah and I passed out a bunch of um, Easter invitation cards before our Easter service last spring. It, it was way, I, I did a bunch by myself, and I kept being nervous when I walked up to people or hoping they didn't come to the door. When I was with him, I wasn't worried at all. It's just so different when you have a partner, when you minister with a friend. So um, that's number four. Number five, landing the plane here. Evangelism is participation, not initiation. We'll get into this more, but what this means is we don't do evangelism. We don't generate witnessing opportunities. Our job is to walk so closely with the Holy Spirit that we start to discern where the Spirit is at work in a person's story. And then we jump into the story there. So I don't have to go make anything happen. I just have to show up in love and relationship and with um, spiritual ears to hear what is the Spirit doing. And that's a whole different story. It's different for me to try and cold call somebody and convince them to believe something that they don't already believe. That's, that, that's so different from, Holy Spirit, where are you at work? And how can I serve the work that you're already doing? See, God's the evangelist. The Holy Spirit is actively at work drawing people back to God. So our job is to partner with the Spirit, not show up and try and make it happen. And then last thought, number six. Evangelism is not a have to, 
It is a get to. And anyone who has ever tried this, anyone who has ever engaged in these conversations knows that, wow, and some of you can relate to this, when you see the gospel change a life, and then it goes on to change a relationship or a family or even an entire family tree, when you watch the gospel shift a family legacy, there is nothing like it on the planet. It's not an obligation. It is the greatest privilege in the world to be able to say, wow, I have encountered a love that has transformed my life, and you have a role in the love story. And that's what we get to offer, and that's what we get to do. It's certainly not a have to, it's a get to. So over the next couple weeks, this will help us offload our fears, feel more equipped, and listen, if we're, if we're open to this, I think in this coming year, we will experience things in God that we've never experienced before. And our personal worlds will be revolutionized. Um, I'll have the worship team rejoin me. I think here at Hope City Church, I think that I think we're a very kind. Uh, this is my perspe- my perception. I think we're a very kind and loving and pastoral church, and I think that's so good. I think that's how God has shaped us. Churches all have different shapes and different emphases. I think we were created as a church to be a safe, loving, accepting, third-way, Jesus-centered church. I think we've got some muscle and some definition in those areas, and that's good. But from a spiritual perspective, we don't want to be like those guys who skip leg day in the gym. You ever seen this guy? We we don't want to underdevelop some of the muscles that are supposed to, 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 to be just as strong as other areas. So, so let's spend a few weeks working this muscle of evangelism. And, and in this upcoming year, let's ask God to add this as a strength to our church. Can we do that? Are, are you open to this? Why don't you stand with me?